0: Don't know much about history. Those are the immortal words of Sam Cooke. It also happens to be true. Many of us don't know much about history. Just think of the way that we use the word. You know, someone gets fired from a job. And what do we say? She's history. Today, we are talking about American Jewish history. And we're talking about the lessons of American Jewish history and what those lessons have to say to the present moment in Jewish life, which is to say the post-October 7th Jewish reality. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. with us today, I, I can't begin to tell you, I'm about to go all fanboy on him someone i've admired for years someone i've liked for years it's really a major honor to have perhaps the most important historian of american judaism alive today and that's professor jonathan sarna who serves as university professor joseph h and bell r braun professor of american jewish history at brandeis university the director of the schusterman center for israel studies he has also taught at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, at Harvard, at Yale, at the University of Cincinnati, and at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Professor Sarna is also the past president of the Association for Jewish Studies, and he is the chief historian of the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. And may I take the liberty, please, of dedicating this podcast to the memory Of our dear friend, our teacher, Rabbi David Ellenson, who was taken from us far too young and far too quickly, the past president and provost of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. I have to say one of the most profound public intellectuals in the Jewish world today, he left a gaping hole in our lives. And I will say this as well, and I wrote about this in my column in his memory. I don't think there was anyone as universally admired and simultaneously as universally loved in the non-Orthodox Jewish world, and perhaps even the Orthodox Jewish world, is David Ellenson. We miss him terribly. So let me tell you why we're talking today. Let me tell you why I invited Professor Sarna to join us. I am obsessed with the following question. In fact, I sent Professor Sarna a long essay that i wrote on the subject you see i'm a student of jewish history but not like professor sarna i mean that's like saying i play guitar but not like eric clapton and i have been noticing something diaspora jewish communities even if they last for a thousand years or two thousand years have a period of prosperity and peace, an upward arc that lasts no longer than about 200 years. That's the shelf life of diaspora Jewish success in any given place. Now, in the wake of October 7th, with the rise of raw Jew hatred in this country, the question that's on my mind and the question that everyone asks me at dinner text messages are we about to enter the period of a big chill no 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 no. not god forbid what german jews experienced after kristallnacht but are we in a new and unsettling period of american jewish history just yesterday brett stevens wrote in the new york times there's a historical pattern In the early 1920s, the most important scientist in Germany was Albert Einstein, the most important politician was Walter Rathenau, and the most important philosopher was Edmund Husserl. All Jews, they wound up exiled, murdered, or shunned. Today, the U.S. Secretaries of State, Treasury, and Homeland Security are Jewish, as is the majority leader in the Senate, the president's chief of staff, But too often in Jewish history, our zenith turns out to be our precipice. And so we're talking today with Professor Jonathan Sarna. He and I are just going to jam around this question. Professor Sarna, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you, and really
1: a pleasure and an honor to be with you. I think it's very good for Jews to... Think about the challenge that you pose. The great danger for Jews is when they uh, come to be too smug. Uh, They feel certain that they have discovered uh, a utopia. For me, because it's easier to look backwards than to look forward. I've been thinking about 1881, a great watershed in Jewish history. That was the year when Alexander II was assassinated in Russia, and with that assassination came an orgy of anti-Semitism as well as very significant anti-Semitic legislation, that Jews had not expected. They had been watching life improve and improve year by year, and they thought perhaps that liberalization was coming, and then it all collapsed. And there were two solutions proposed in 1881. One of those solutions was Zionism, the establishment of what was called the lovers, Chibatzion. And the other solution was immigration, mostly to America. And what nobody could have foreseen almost 150 years ago was that a century and a half later, the Russian Jewish community would essentially be no more. The largest Jewish community in the world in 1881 and today um, uh, maybe 100,000. But on the other hand, and this is to your point, what we learned on October 7 is that neither of those solutions Zion or America, if you like promised land or golden land, neither one has turned out to be as utopian as we Jews had hoped. Zion couldn't protect its Jews and America couldn't prevent outbreaks of anti-Semitism. Now, it's important not to exaggerate. Israel demonstrated that they were not like the cities in Russia that experienced pogroms. They could fight back. Not everyone is happy when Jews fight back, but Israel proved it could, and that's the difference. And in America... For all that we are witnessing, anti Semitism that many did not expect to see in their lifetime, it is not worse than we have seen at other moments in the 20s and the 30s. And more importantly, so far, that could change, but so far, The leadership of the country is trying to tamp down anti-Semitism rather than stir it up. And that, of course, is a great difference from what happened uh, in Europe. We know and we've watched, uh, Rabbi, that there have been other moments of anti-Semitism, wars and so on that have led to outbreaks, and then uh, the war ends. And, you know, in America, there are other targets. So that could certainly happen this time as well. But I take your point that Jews need to be vigilant. And I think uh, this is a moment when Jews everywhere have learned how important it is to be vigilant in everything that that word entails, and we need to fight hard to make sure that our best days in America are not behind us, and as Israelis are saying, we don't have any other country. Well, in a way, there's no other diaspora option but North America. And my own sense, and and I want to hear from you, but my own sense is that since October 7th, we have learned how, Interdependent we are, North America and Israel. We are the Bavel, Jerusalem, the Babylonia and Jerusalem of our time. Almost ninety percent now of world Jewry live in North America and Israel, which is really very different than the situation of contemporary Jewry right after World War II. And uh, we have to support one the other. I think it's been good for Israel to know that they are supported in the United States. That march of 300,000 unprecedented in Washington spoke loudly. And it's certainly important for American Jews to know that there is a strong Israel that can fight back when attacked. And so I'm hoping that the future will really recalibrate around those two poles, much as in antiquity, not will one triumph over the other, but how a Jewish community that really has these two very significant options and centers can, in a sense, refocus so that each once again attempts to be the greatest Jewish community that the world has ever known. So that's kind of my more hopeful outlook for the future. But I want to say again, um, yeah, it's good for Jews to be worried and vigilant and everything in our history, as you know so well, encourages just that. So
0: much to ask you, Professor. One of the things I want to focus on is I'm just dealing with this historic coincidence that the state of Israel this year has marked its 75th anniversary. And surely you know that the institution that pays your salary, Brandeis University, is also celebrating its 75th anniversary. In my mind, I haven't written this article yet or this sermon yet, The polarity of Brandeis University and the state of Israel being created at the same time. That's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. And it was known and commented upon. uh, Israel's new ambassador came to the dedication of Brandeis University, uh, although it wasn't so easy to get to and it wasn't such a rich country uh, to uh, help him make the journey. But there were very close ties. And I think both Brandeis and Israel were seen as responses to the new world that had come into existence after the Shoah, after the Holocaust. No longer could Jews depend upon Eastern Europe. To be the center of learning, of culture, of Jewish civilization. Now, much sooner than anyone had anticipated, and in a much more tragic manner, the baton had been passed. American Jewry emerged from the war, the largest, the wealthiest, the most powerful diaspora Jewish community in the world. And Israel was likewise established after the war because in part, I talked on about for uh, 60, 70 years by then, but Israel was established because there needed to be a homeland for the Jewish people. And in short order, Hundreds of thousands poured in, not only from the displaced persons camp, but also from throughout the Arab world, where Jews were expelled. And in an age of nationalism, there was a sense we needed a Jewish homeland in World War II's uh, aftermath. So Both came onto the scene at the same time. They cooperated. Many at Brandeis spent time at the Hebrew University and vice versa. In the early years of the university, there were various studies of the kibbutz movement. There was a lot in common, and I think that it's kind of interesting to look at the two together. And of course, I mentioned the Babylonia and Jerusalem, Bavel v'Yerushalayim. The essay and the great thinker behind it was Simon Ravidovitz, who had left, uh, who was a Zionist thinker, of great, uh, significant, and who had come to Brandeis to take charge of Jewish studies there, and he had a complicated relationship with Israel. On the one hand, he was deeply respected, and David Ben-Gurion greatly cherished his writings. And on the other hand, they profoundly disagreed, even on the name of the new state, which Ben-Gurion named Israel. But Ravidovich said, no, Israel is the totality. Of the jewish people not just a state
0: okay so now we're coming into it so here's what i'm thinking number one you just named it professor sarna it is my sense and the sense of many people and i've written about this and will continue to write about it that the anti-israel stuff that we're seeing now profoundly on college campuses where i think it's going to get chilly for jews Let me just say this. I know Jewish kids are still going to be able to get into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, MIT, Cornell. Big question is, will they want to? Number two, you just nailed it. That the name of the state is simultaneously the name of the people. You know, shameless plug, my new book, Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism. While ostensibly is about the state of Israel, I tell everyone, no, it's about the people Israel. So here's the deal. There's anti-Israel stuff going on, but I think it's anti-Israel. In other words, I don't think it's just about Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel. I think it's about Am Yisrael. So here's what everyone's asking right now. In the pages of our most distinguished publications, is anti-Zionism coterminous? the same as anti-Semitism, or let me put it to you in a more elegant way, is it merely an arm, a different manifestation of anti-Semitism? I have my own answer, but I'm turning to you, Professor Sarna. <laughs> uh,
1: you're right that this is, uh, you know, a question one gets asked, and all uh, well, scholars know that there were Jewish movements, uh, like Satmar that didn't accept Zionism there were of course classical reform Jews who didn't accept Zionism and clearly were Jews but I'm very worried about being diverted from the reality of anti-Semitism in their day uh, by such sophistic questions when the Hamas murderer called his mother on a call, that we all listened to, he didn't say, Mom, I killed 10 Israelis. Mom, I killed 10 Zionists. He said, Mom, I killed 10 Jews. Bingo. And I have to say, anyone who studies the sources, I'm a historian, we go to the primary sources, sees that Zionist Jew and uh, Israeli in the anti-Semitic discourse, are used as synonyms. Remember, and that has a long history, it was before the state of Israel, the protocols of the elders of Zion. So the anti-Semitic literature doesn't know these fine distinctions. And it is very foolish, I think, for Jews to be distracted by such questions when there are very significant issues facing uh, the Jewish community, both in Israel and in the United States, and most of all, as you observe on college campuses. I am a player a bit on that issue. I was testified at the Senate roundtable on anti-Semitism on college campuses. And I am a little more hopeful because I think that we now understand that this is not just about free speech. It is really about the guarantees of the Civil Rights Act that ensure that nobody on a college campus or in a workplace needs to suffer intimidation and harassment. And in the wake of the hearing where I spoke, the Department of Education sent a dear colleague letter to every college and university reminding them of Title VI and their requirements. And lo and behold, in the wake of that letter, which threatens to deny federal funds, uh, we are seeing on many campuses, sometimes publicly, sometimes quietly, new concern about the question of whether Jews are being intimidated and harassed, and more deeply, I think, a somewhat different approach to the university. It'll take some time before professors give in. But whereas we've had lots of faculty who believed that under the cloak of free speech and academic freedom. They could harass and intimidate uh, students, and we've had certainly organizations like Students for Justice in Palestine that consider intimidation part of what they do. Uh, Now I think uh, that will not be tolerated, and uh, that will make for a much Better campus environment where people know that they are engaged in joint explorations for truth and that intimidation and harassment uh, simply uh, have no place at the university. It will take time. Uh, it took time before um, uh, workplaces, as women came in, uh, removed. Um, Uh, uh, pictures that women found to be intimidating and that created an environment of hostility. Who wanted to look at at playboy pictures when you were working? But over time, free speech gave way to a higher need to create a certain kind of environment. And I'm perhaps maybe too optimistic, but I think we're beginning a much needed move in that direction on the university campus. And I think it behooves everybody uh, who donates to universities or who is involved with universities to promote that sense that universities have to create Environments for shared learning, and and truly have to silence those who intimidate and harass. It is also worth knowing, and a new Brandeis study underscores this: that not all universities are in trouble. There are not only universities that have spoken out strongly in favor of Israel, but also uh, universities. Admittedly, not the same top tier ones as the ones you listed, but plenty of universities where uh, students are engaged in learning, and they often have to earn a living besides learning, and it's all they can do to study and work, and there's been no politics there. There have been a small number of highly prestigious colleges and universities where unspeakable activities have taken place. I think uh, we should be grateful that a bright light has been shown on those activities, and uh, I'm fairly hopeful that many of them will end over the next few years, but we'll see.
0: We'll be right back. We've been hanging out with Professor Jonathan Sarna, University Professor of American Jewish History at Brandeis University. Perhaps at this point, I think it's fair to say the Dean of American Jewish Historians. And yes, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred from the Religion News Service. I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. Uh, Professor Sarna, in partial preparation for this conversation, I revisited an essay that you wrote, relatively recently, about the history of American anti-Semitism. Loved it. I was utterly fascinated uh, by it. So let me ask you something. You mentioned that throughout American history, Americans, as it were, have exhibited your, quote, diverse and conflicting attitudes towards Jews. I think there has often been a mythic structure in which we believe that this has been a land devoid of anti-Semitism, or when it's happened, it's been episodic. In rereading your essay, I realize how much this is actually in American DNA, though like many autoimmune diseases, it goes undercover until the immune system is totally shot. What What is this thing about this diverse and conflicting attitudes towards Jews?
1: Yeah, and. My friend, Professor Pamela Nadell at American University, is actually writing a new history of American anti-Semitism. And the title, I believe, is Anti-Semitism, an American Tradition. And that, too, will shake people up, but he's certainly right. From the very beginning, when Peter Stuyvesant uh, uh, wanted to exclude the Jews and made very Nasty comments about them back in 1654. Now, what I mean by it being complicated, uh, there are times when you think of people who are both anti-Semitic and philo-Semitic. At the one and the same time, you find both kinds of quotes. Uh, Really, Thomas Jefferson, he had Jews with whom he corresponded and Jews, and there weren't many in America whom he clearly respected, and he made sure that the University of Virginia would be open to Jews. And at the same time, in writing to John Adams, he has the most negative things to say about Jewish texts, Jewish morality, Jewish civilization. So. One at the same time, you can say Jefferson was a philosemite semite and an anti-Semite. And honestly, the same might be true of Mr. Trump, who has been known to say things that, on the one hand, come out of an anti-Semitic playbook, and on the other, a philo semitic one. And there are many such people, and in many ways... I think there are those strains within American life. Jews have contributed so much to America, totally out of proportion to their numbers, and that's widely known, and anyone who's in the arts and sciences and so on has respect for what Jews have done, and yet at the same time, uh, there are very worrisome anti-Semitic trends, not just directed at individual Jews, but directed at the very ideas about individualism and merit that have been so central to what made America special for Jews. There are those who argue that uh, Jews form part of the powerful And uh, that we should really focus only on the powerless. What, of course, is curious is that on the extreme left, the problem with Jews is that they are like the white folks, but on the extreme right, the problem with Jews is that they are pretending to be white and indeed are undermining white civilization. Jews, I think, are the only group that get it from both sides for opposite reasons. The other, I think, problematic idea that would undermine Jewish life in the United States is the growing notion in some circles that people should be recognized according to their percentage of the population so that if Jews are two or three percent of the population, oh, that's the percent that should be admitted to great universities. That's the percent that should be in Congress, and that Jews are disproportionately powerful and shouldn't be. That's, again, a very un-American notion for those who know its history, which their notion was That individuals had unlimited potential, and we didn't look at them as part of the group. We looked at them for what they could do, and indeed, well, given that untrammeled freedom, they accomplished a tremendous amount. If the new ideas, which are particularly advanced, I have to say, in certain offices. That promote the idea of what they call equity, equity suggesting that it's inequitable that a group that is 2% should receive more money, more power, more slots than 2%. If that were to become policy, then I think the American dream would end, not just for Jews, But for a lot of groups, it remains to be seen how broadly ideas of what are called equity and group rights will be taken up. But in any case, I think that what has been advantageous for Jews is, first of all, that many people harbor, as I said, both anti-Semitic and philo-Semitic ideas. And second of all, whereas in many countries, Jews were the principal outgroup, sometimes the only outgroup, the only ones who weren't part of the national faith and so on, that has never been true in America. There are lots of persecuted groups in America. And because Jews are not the only outgroup, that has in many ways a protection protected them. And there are a great many Americans who, when they think hard or when they look into the history of their own families, know, oh, my ancestors were once persecuted because they'd come from Germany or because they were Catholic or Mormon, so on and so forth. And not to speak of what it meant to be an African-American, and those folks at their best don't want to see hatred rear its head in America because they know very well that once hatred is unleashed, it may begin with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. It always moves on and the logic moves to other groups. So that gives us some consolation and hope at what is otherwise a very, very difficult time. Readers may want to look at an article in the New York Times just today as we speak about New Yorkers, the largest urban Jewish community, certainly the largest in the diaspora, and to have so many New Yorkers, Talk about how they are unexpectedly encountering anti-Semitism with gratuitous attacks on Jews, with signs death to the Jews and the like has to give one a great pause.
0: It's really a very disturbing situation that we're encountering today. And I love that you said that there have been numerous victims. Historically in this country of the war against difference, Catholics, Irish, Germans, Dara Horn in her book, Uh, people love dead Jews does make the interesting point that the only immigrant group that saw fit to changing their names in order to gain employment were the Jews, that Italians kept their names, Germans kept their names, the Irish kept their names. I, I want to just, before we end, I just want to go back into history because I'm a bit of a history geek. You know, there have been some very famous or should be famous or infamous Jew haters in American history. Who would be part of your rogues gallery of the greatest hits yeah. of American Jew hatred?
1: Look, nobody had more impact and still has impact than Henry Ford.
0: Unbelievable, huh?
1: Because Henry Ford, the international Jew, even though he apologized, lives on today on the internet and all over the world. Company has long disavowed his volumes, but those four volumes were distributed in the tens of thousands of copies, and it certainly had a vast impact. Another example is Father Charles Coughlin. Father Coughlin was really the first of the great radio priests. He understood the power of radio when it was very young, and he used that power in the 1930s to uh, lash out against Jews, to defend Hitler, to encourage uh, many of his followers, a lot of them Catholics, to go after Jews. Of course, we now know, thanks to a recent book, that he was literally in the pay of the Nazis uh, mm. from Germany. That uh, New documents were uh, discovered. And, you know, that is in many ways important to remember. But the damage wrought by Father Coughlin uh, was very great. It's, I think about it a lot today because just as today we have a lot of new technologies that are harnessed by anti-Semites. So Father Coughlin harnessed the technology radio and used it for anti-Semitic purposes. The government cracked down on radio uh, once uh, America entered World War II, and there were very significant restrictions on hate speech in the radio, which I'm sure some in the free speech community don't like, but may well have been good for American society. And whether we will do the same social media remains to be seen. But there is little doubt that social media is playing a huge role in stirring up anti-Semitism, in stirring up hatred of Israel, and of anyone connected to Israel. You know, once again, the question is, how will civilized people who want to live with one another restrict the untrammeled freedom of new brought on by new technologies in order to help us be a better society
0: yeah it's so interesting i often think about father Coglin, and i have asked myself the very dark question can you imagine father coghlan on tiktok yeah that's the question. So let me ask you before we wrap up, Professor Jonathan Sarna, my old friend, my teacher, still one of the iconic figures of the American Jewish academic scene, what's given you hope? Well, uh, look, all of Jewish history
1: is a history of hope. We're still here. Uh, we've overcome one anti Semite after another. And that's, in a sense, what we are reminded of. I'm Passover, and every generation arise to destroy us. And uh, we do survive. We survive, I think, not just by reciting the book of Psalms and, uh, and praying, although that isn't a bad thing to do, but we survive because we do what you and I have been trying to do, We try and understand what's going on. Uh, We are cognizant of our surroundings and we keep hoping to bring about improvement, uh, sometimes through the political avenues, sometimes by judicious use of our charitable giving, uh, sometimes in other ways. But It's important for Jews to know that they are not just victims, they also have power. And it's important for Jews to know that dark as our time may seem, we've actually known as a people much darker moments. And we know that they can be followed by surprising new light. I hope that this moment will lead many Jews to inquire, uh, what is this Judaism that others want to stamp out? What is it? And have I studied enough about my culture and civilization? And uh, that perhaps as in other moments, The late 19th century, the 1930s, and so on, when anti Semitism roared its head, it will paradoxically have the effect of strengthening Jewish life, of leading to a Jewish awakening, of promoting deeper ties between North America and Israel. And we will look back and say that this. Terrible moment that we are living through, I had a silver lining and made us stronger
0: and better Jews than we were before. That is the pattern that we're counting on. I keep on thinking of the rabbinic dictum, zeh Ya'avor, this too shall pass. But you're saying something as we end that I've noticed since October 7th. Professor Sarna, I'm sure you've got stories about this as well, maybe among your students, maybe among your friends, maybe among the parents of your students. But over and over and over again, I am encountering formerly assimilated Jews, Jews who did nothing, who all of a sudden are now starting to exhibit visible signs of their Jewish identity, who are going back to synagogue, who are now starting to study. And this is a pattern of Jewish history as well. It happened in Germany. It's happened in many diaspora communities. So what you're saying is there is light in this darkness. And you are the the perfect person to teach us this because you know this stuff. So we want to just thank, once again, our good friend, Professor Jonathan Sarna, who took time out of a crazy schedule to hang out with us today. And friends, I invite you to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Julia Windham. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Now, I got to tell you, This podcast, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts, do us a favor, please. You would help us. Download our podcast, leave us a five-star rating, be part of this conversation. Well, friends, this is going to be the last podcast that we probably will record in 2023. You're going to be hearing this at the beginning of 2024. So I'm going to be late in terms of wishing you a Happy New Year, Happy Secular New Year 2024, but I think we can all agree 2023 was just awful. And I have no compunctions about saying goodbye to a year that was filled with such pain, anguish, and dreck. Let's pray that the hostages are freed. Let's strengthen the hands of the IDF, and let's hope for the end of tragedy for all. Shalom, everyone. Many thanks. We'll see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.